All right, we're talking about incommunicable attributes of God, and um, last week we just talked about uh, how to classify God's attributes. It's just a rough classification. We're talking first about those where God is less like us, uh, more different from us, incommunicable, and then we'll go to a whole bunch of attributes, communicable attributes of God. Um, uh, we t- talked about all of creation revealing something of God to us. And uh, oh, let's see, that was back here. Point D, God made the universe so it would show forth the excellence of his character. And so much of it reflects who he is. And uh, we ended with this on Psalm 148, all the universe praising the name of the Lord. Um, I think we did this. All the scripture says about God uses anthropomorphic language. That is language that speaks about God in human terms. The Bible says God is love. Well, we know something about human love. The Bible says that God knows all things. We, we know something about human knowledge. Uh, the Bible says that God speaks. Well, we, we speak. And the Bible says that God is our father. We know what a father is. So in many ways, God... Uh, tells us about himself through things that we understand in this life. Okay, now we come to starting a list of about, I think it'll be about 30 attributes of God, so it's going to take us quite a few weeks. Um, But the first one we're going to deal with uh, this morning is God's independence, or sometimes it's called aseity. Aseity from a Latin, two words, ase, from himself, so God's aseity would be his from himselfness, um, or his self-existence. And what I mean by that is that God does not need us. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> Something new this morning. God does not need us. Hmm. Well, we'll think about that for a minute. I know when I ask you that, you'd say, yes, that's true. But I think that sometimes we tend to slip into thinking that God needed us for something. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. That's God's independence. But if we stop there, it might leave us thinking that there's no use for us at all and we don't have any value at all. And so there's another part to this, and it's the second half of the definition, and it's also true in Scripture, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. But I want to start out, for the first few minutes here, I want to start out with God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. I should ask you, how many of you don't have that outline that has this stuff on it? You still need an outline. Garth has a few here in the front row, and the system is I'm working off this outline for a few weeks, so they're always on that table that is right there when you come in. And so if you, if you didn't, um, didn't get one when you came in, just hold up your hand. and we'll get one. Or if you want to just get, go and get one for yourself from the back table, that's fine. I pay Garth by the hour, and if you have to get it, get it yourself. If you get it yourself, it saves some of the... I'm joking. Couldn't pay him for what he's worth. Okay, uh, we start out here. um, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Acts 
17, 24 to 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is Acts 17. This is Paul in Athens on the Areopagus. This is Paul speaking to Greek philosophers. This is Paul, I don't know if you've ever been there, to Athens. You can see the place where Paul stood and spoke. But as he's standing and speaking, I imagine he's saying, God does not live in temples made by man, pointing to the Acropolis. Uh, and that, that huge, beautiful Greek temple was on top of that hill, uh, the Parthenon. And then Paul's saying, you got it wrong. God doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. That is, you can't bring him sacrifices that he needs. He's not like your Greek gods, as though he needed anything. In other words, he doesn't need anything since everything comes from him. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made the world. He made everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need us for anything. <clears throat> That's God's independence. And you know, you could really get this idea from Genesis 1.1, if you think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that there is was made by him. So how could he need any of it if it all came from him? He, he, uh, he, that means he didn't need it for his own existence. Uh, God says to Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. He, he has everything. It isn't that we could give him anything, that he needs anything from us. Psalm 50, 10 to 12, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. So... God is saying again and again that he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from us. He's independent of us. And I think we should go on and in a little more detail point out that God didn't create human beings in order to make up for a deficiency in himself. Sometimes people have thought, well, maybe God created us because he was lonely. He needed personal fellowship with other people. But that idea forgets that uh, God wasn't lonely before he created the world. Why not? Hmm? There was the Trinity. There was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three infinite persons uh, in fellowship with each other. And so um, Jesus can talk about the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's um, a sharing of glory between the Father and Son before anything was. And um, a little bit later in John 17, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There was interpersonal love and communication among the members of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. And that means that God did not need to create you. 
and he didn't need to create me, he didn't need to create anyone. Oh. <laughs> well, take a deep breath now and think about that for a minute. God didn't need to create anything or anybody. He was perfectly complete in himself. He was completely independent in himself. Another way of saying that sometimes is that uh, theologians in history have said all of God's works outside of himself are voluntary. That is, he didn't have to do anything that he did. It was all his choice to do it. Now, I just want you to think about that for a minute. God didn't need to create any human beings, didn't need to create any stars, any planets, any earth, any universe, any animals, any angels, didn't need to create anything. And that means he didn't need to create you. Now, how does that make you feel? Fortunate. I know what you're going to do is you're going to jump over to saying, oh, wow, and then uh, there must, I'm, I'm glad that he did create me. But, but don't go there yet. Don't go to the happy thought yet. Just, I'll come to that in a minute. But stay away from that for a minute. There's another thing that's probably happening as you think that God didn't need to create you. What's that, Andrea? What? Fearful. Fearful? Because? <laughs> Makes it, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe he still doesn't need me. Okay, okay, all right. I'm, I'm not sure I want to nurture that thought too much, but um, okay, about being fearful. I don't think, because I don't think he's going to destroy us now that once he's created us. There's something else that should happen in us, Vic. Okay, Vic is waxing philosophical here. If I didn't exist, I wouldn't be worrying about not existing. Well, that's true. (laughs) I'm still fishing for an answer here. I'm not getting too far. All right, how does it make you feel that God didn't need to create you? I forgot your name way in the back. Glenn. Yeah, that's the question. Okay, so it makes the question, why did he create us? Okay, what else? Okay. Laverne. Not saying these other answers are wrong, just that she got the answer I was looking for. It makes me feel very humble. I think it should do that to us. If God didn't need to create anything, He didn't need to create me, then all of a sudden I go, <sighs> okay, all right. Does that mean that God could? accomplish all his kingdom work without me? Ah, yes, he could. Can I say it? I think that's true. And it takes away, I think it, I think it gives, I think it rightly humbles us if we ponder it for a minute. It takes away our sense of, oh, here I am, God, I'm so important, you must need me. And we can, t- our pride can tend to let us think in that direction sometimes. And I, and I want to come back. I think we are important for a different reason here, but it's not because God needs us. 
And it's good, I think it's good for us just to ponder that for a minute. And just, it, it, it sort of gives me a sense of being a settled peace that all is well with the universe, even if I weren't around. <laughs> that God will do just fine without me. And it makes me, it gives me a higher sense of who God is. And, uh, and it humbles me. I don't know if you're feeling that or not. I'm feeling it right now. I'm feeling, hmm, okay, God didn't need to create me. All right. Okay, he's independent. Now, in a minute, I'm going to get to the point where I said in the second half of the definition, yet we can glorify him and, and give him joy. And I think that God does accomplish his work in this world through us, and we are very important for that reason. But it's not because God needed us. It's because he decided to make us important. And so that means that our importance goes back to God and his decision. All right, you com comfortable with that? Okay. There's something else about God's independence. And that is, God Can somebody... I, I have to give myself a note to change the battery in this. Every time I think to do it, I'm teaching. And then I forget, change battery. Sorry. Um, God, in this, see there are just a couple little batteries. Um, God exists by virtue of his very nature. He was never created and never came into being because he always, he's always existed. Um, uh, that is, everything that exists has been created by him. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That is, everything's come into being because he created them, but he's always been God. Even before he created anything, he was God. So before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That is, as far back as you could think into the past, as far future as you could think into the future, infinitely far in the past and the future, God exists. He is God. He exists by virtue of his very being. And when he defines himself... To Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I will be who I will be. And he said, say to this people, to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So, <laughs> my goodness, instant battery change. Thank you, Daryl. Now I have to scratch my note. <laughs> I've been going through four or five classes, and every time I think I've got to change. All right. Thank you, Daryl, very much. God may not have needed to create you, but I needed you at that moment. <laughs> okay. He exists by virtue of his very being. Nothing else in the universe is like this. It, there's nothing else that necessarily exists. The earth exists because God created it. You exist because God created you. Angels exist because God created them. They don't have the characteristic of necessary existence. But God has that characteristic. He can't not exist. It's impossible for him not to be. He is. Before anything else, he exists. So he has necessary existence. And that fact should make us realize that the difference between the creator and the creature 
is an infinite difference. It's a difference of not just that he's greater than we are, but he's qualitatively different. His existence is different. We all depend on his sustaining power so that we just don't pass out of existence into non-existence. But he exists forever by virtue of his own nature, and he can't not exist. So the difference between God and the creation is, is uh, it's, 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 much, it, it's not the same as the difference between a drop of water and the ocean, or a candle and the sun or a snowflake and a glacier. Those are just differences of lesser and greater. It's, it's, it's a different kind of distinction than that. It's a difference in quality. God has to exist by virtue of his own nature, and he cannot ever cease to exist, and it's impossible that he wouldn't exist, but we all exist by virtue of depending on him. Now that, again, should humble us and make us think that God is so great, and we in relationship to him, depend on him completely. Although God is totally content in himself, now we go to where some of you were getting to a minute ago, he nonetheless does receive glory and have joy as a result of his creation. There are two mistakes that people can make. One is to say, oh, God had to create us we're so important. God needs us. I don't want to go there. But then, once people begin to reflect on how great God is and how independent he is and how he didn't need to create us and all things depend on him, they can take that truth from the Bible and not balance it with other truths from the Bible and end up saying, we don't matter. We're just nothing. And then that kind of destroys destroys another theme in the Bible, which is that we are now important to God. And so Isaiah 43 talks about why God created us. He talks about everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What does glory mean? It means honor, uh, praise, um, his, the, the goodness of his reputation, so that we would show forth something of his excellence, his glory, his, his honor, or great praise. He created us for that, and that means that he enjoys that. He takes pleasure in it. He delights in it. And we are to do, says Paul, we are to do all for the glory of God. So does God, does it, do we matter to God? Even though he didn't have to create us, do we matter? Yes, we matter a lot. In fact, there are some remarkable passages in the Old Testament that talk about God delighting in his people when they uh, trust in him and they obey him. Isaiah 62, 3-5, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. I don't know. I doubt that anyone in the room has ever held a real crown in your hand. I have seen the crown that the Queen of England wears, but I've seen it through thick glass plates at uh, Windsor Castle outside of London, and you know, you can go by it and see it in the window, and they don't let you stand there very long and look at it. It's got all these incredible, you know, diamonds and emeralds and rubies, and they're just bigger than anyone you've ever seen, and they're all in this crown. If you got to hold that, 
I think you'd just, you'd kind of hold it up to the light, and you'd turn it, and you'd just see how the light reflects. You'd just kind of look at it and look at it. You'd say, wow, this is, this is the most remarkable uh, thing of beauty that is uh, in terms of jewelry and gold and things that I've ever seen. And God says, you're like that to me. Takes pleasure in you, delights in you, thinks that you are incredibly beautiful to him. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem, another name for a crown, in the hand of your God. You shall no more be turned forsaken. Your land shall no more be turned desolate. You shall be called, my delight is in her. That's the, I think the King James Version said, Hephzibah. Uh, my delight is in her. And your land shall be, uh, and your land shall be called married, for the Lord delights in you. Your land shall be married. Uh, uh, as a young man marries a young woman. Now, here's another figure of speech. Here, one was a crown of beauty. Now, here's a marriage figure of speech. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom re- is p- picturing Israel as the bride. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, think about the last time you were at... W- w- did Phil and Ruth Marsh have a... Daughter married yesterday, I think, yeah. And um, since maybe some of you have been recently at a wedding, and you think, now, how does the groom look at the bride? Oh, a lot of joy, great a smile, delight in his eyes as he looks at his bride. And God says, that's the way I will rejoice over you. That's the way I will look at you. I will have pleasure in you like a groom has pleasure in a bride. I'll rejoice over you. Now think about God thinking of you that way, rejoicing in you like a crown, or like a, a groom rejoicing over a bride. And there's another passage in Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What? God singing? He's so happy that he's singing? Who ever heard of that? Well, who do you think invented voices? Who do you think invented music? Who do you think created us so that we could sing? <clears throat> That's God. And the Bible says, He's so delightful over his people. He rejoices over them so much he's singing. Now, this is the God who didn't have to create you at all. He is totally independent. He didn't need you at all, yet he chose to create you. He chose to make you for his glory so that you would honor him. And when you honor him, you make him so happy that he's singing. And he's looking at you with the greatest, I mean, The greatest in terms of uh, jewels and and a crown, that's the highest pinnacle of that human delight in something that's uh, human artwork or made. And then then this pinnacle of human joy of a bridegroom rejoicing over a bride. God uses those images to say, I think that much of you. Oh, now, how does it make you feel? (laughs) Isn't this amazing? That the infinite God of the universe, who has existed eternally and is omnipotent and omniscient, didn't need to create you for anything, had complete fellowship in himself and the Trinity for all eternity, he created you and takes pleasure in you. Oh, wow. 
I think that is a tremendous encouragement to us. And I think we should think about that as applying to us individually, not just as a group, yes, but individually as well. So now we look at this question. If God is absolutely independent and has no need of any of us or of the creation, then what gives you significance? See, I don't think we should say God needed me because then that makes God dependent on us. What gives us significance then if God didn't need us? Well, what gives us significance is that God decided that you would be important to him. He, decide, he said, E.G., I count you important. Carol, I count you important. Christine, I count you important. You're important to me. John, I count you important. You are significant to me. That's what gives you significance, that he's created you and he's created you for his glory. He's created you for a purpose. And as you are faithful to him, whatever calling he gives you and whatever role he places you in life, at whatever point he places you in life, as you're faithful to him, then he says, I take delight in you. You are faithful to me. Well, how's that for significance? Is that enough? <laughs> what more could you want for a measure of significance? that the God of the universe says you are significant to him. He rejoices over you. You bring him glory. Okay, questions on that? That's, that's God's unchangeableness. Oh, I'm sorry, God's independence. Anything else on that? I, that's a foundational doctrine about God's attributes. It kind of sets us having the right perspective of the dis distinction between the creator and the creature, is he is God and we are not. And our search for significance ultimately has to rest in him. Okay? Let's go on. Number two, unchangeableness. Unchangeableness or immutability. Sometimes people use one word or the other. What does that mean? It means that God is unchanging in his being perfections, purposes, and promises, yet God does act. And he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. And so um, I want to start out here by saying when we talk about God's unchangeableness, The question is, how is he unchanging? If we just made it up by ourselves, we might say he's unchanging in every way. He doesn't change at all. The problem is that, again, would be a misunderstanding because it brings us into conflict with some other passages of Scripture that shows there are some ways in which God changes. He acts differently in different situations, for instance. And that's some kind of a change. So what I've done is, and I've, I didn't make this up myself, I, I got it from a book by a man named Louis Burkhoff, B-E-R-K-H-O-F. It was a theology text I used to teach from. Uh, he said God is unchanging in four ways. In his being, in his perfections, that'd be like his attributes, in his purposes, 
and in his promises. That's not in every way, but that's unchanging in some ways. Now, his being and perfections. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Again, here in Psalm 102, the author is putting us in a kind of a cosmic perspective. The earth, the heavens, that's kind of taking into account everything. They will perish, but you remain. What? The earth, the heavens, will perish? Yes. But you will remain. God is unchanging. In, in contrast to what we might think is unchanging, it will change, but God remains. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Actually, the book of Hebrews chapter 1 takes this exact passage and applies it to Jesus Christ. But here, you are the same, and your years have no end. So God is, in contrast to the changing of the universe, stars are burning out slowly. We won't live to see them burn out. It takes a long time, but they're changing. But God is the same. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. In his being, in his perfections, he doesn't change. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, not even the hint of a change, no change in God's being. In his purposes, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. That is, God has planned something, well, he'll bring it about. He chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is, um, God's purpose to choose us uh, then came about it was realized as, uh, as we came to Christ. But that was starting in the, before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Isaiah 46, 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. In God's purposes, he is unchanging. He, he plans something, and it will come about. Um, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. What is going to be the result of history? How long will the United States endure as a great nation? Will we suffer terrorist attack? How about this bird flu that's coming? Will the housing bubble burst, or is there one? What is happening in the future? We want to know. And we can become anxious about those things. What's going to be the spread of militant Islam through the world? Is this going to be a problem? We can think about those things. What we do know is God's purposes will stand. And he has a purpose for history. He has a purpose for his people. He has a purpose for his church. And we can rest in the fact that that is good for us individually. It's good for us as a church. And it's going to come about. And so God's counsel stands. He declares the end from the beginning. And then, so in his being, in his perfections, his purposes, and in his promises, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? The implied answer is, 
Of course not. That's, that can't be. Once he speaks, he will do it. Once he, once he has said something, it will come about. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. So in his being, in his purposes, in being and perfections, in his purposes and his promises, God is unchanging. However, the question comes up, what about these verses that seem to imply that God changes his mind at times? Jonah 3 Jonah began, God sent Jonah to Nineveh and told them to say that judgment is coming. So Jonah, after a little bit of a detour with the whale and things like that, uh, Jonah decided he would be obedient. He began to go into the city of Nineveh, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But between verse 4, which is this, and verse 10, what happened? Hmm? That, uh, yeah, but what happened to the people of Nineveh? They repented. They, 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 they repented. They humbled themselves before God. They cried out for mercy. They put on sackcloth and ashes, kind of this outward sign of repentance. And they turned away from their evil. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what changed in the situation? Now, here's the situation. If we put it on a timeline, you have timeline point A. God says, I will destroy this city. That's point A. Point B, God says, I will not destroy this city. That's point B. What happened in here is the people repented. And so the situation changed. And when the situation changed, then God said, all right, I won't destroy. Okay? It's like a parent saying... Um, let's see. Um, yeah, it's like a parent saying, Julie, if you talk back once more to your mom, you're going to get a spanking. And Julie talks back once more to her mom, and she does get a spanking. But what if she doesn't? She said, I'm sorry, Dad. I shouldn't have done that. Then the dad says, oh, you're going to get a spanking anyway? What kind of a dad would that be? That would be unfair, right? Unjust. So here, if God says, you, you people of Nineveh, you are evil, you're stuck in your sinful ways, I'm going to destroy you, the implied condition is if you don't repent. Otherwise, why send the warning? But they repented. Now what if God just destroyed them anyway? What kind of a God would that be? That wouldn't be just, would it? No. So in order for God to be unchanging in his justice, he has to respond differently in different situations. Does that make sense? If he's going to be just and they repent, then he's got to say, I will not destroy. So what changed in the situation was the people repented. And that means that God does respond differently to different situations. That's the whole Bible, isn't it? People sin, God judges them, 
They repent, then he blesses them and forgives them. He responds differently to different situations. I know you could find 500 examples of that in the Bible. You might be able to find 1,000 or more. It's just all through the Bible, the whole history of Israel. What if God didn't respond differently to different situations? If he was unchanging in some ways the Bible doesn't talk about, well, then he really wouldn't be true to his character. He wouldn't be God. Okay. Now, what about this situation? Here we have a different situation. Exodus 32.9. This is, Moses went up on Mount Sinai. He was getting the Ten Commandments. Oh, no, this is 32. Uh, this is after, well, I think he was getting the Ten Commandments because he had spoken them in 20, but I think he was getting the tablets of stone. And Moses delayed, the people made a golden calf, and God was angry because they were worshiping a golden calf, which he had just told them not to make any images and bow down to serve them. And so the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. <clears throat> so God says, Moses, I'm going to destroy these people. I'll keep you alive and we'll, we'll, we'll start with plan B. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? So God, Moses is praying. He's pleading. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. In other words, he's appealing to what God has done in the past. <clears throat> why should the Egyptians say? So he's appealing to God's reputation. With evil intent did he bring them out. Why did the Egyptians say? With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains that consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your, you know, here's pleading, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then he goes <coughs> and he appeals to God's words in the past. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land I promised I will give to your offspring, and they will inherit it forever. And after this long prayer, then it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now here, did the people repent like they did at Nineveh? No. No indication of that at all. Here, what changed in the situation? There's only one thing that changed. Yeah, Moses prayed. And so, here, it isn't that the people repented. The thing that changed is Moses prayed. God had said, I will destroy this people. Moses prayed, oh God, please don't destroy the people. And here's Moses, and he's falling on his face before God and crying out to God, Lord, please don't destroy this people. And then God says, all right, I won't destroy them. That's the only thing that changed, is that Moses prayed. What does that tell you about prayer? <laughs> it's important, isn't it? God listens to it. He hears it. Often changes the way he acts in the world in response to our prayer. <clears throat> this God who is unchanging in his being, unchanging in his perfections and his purposes and promises, has set up the world to work in such a way that he responds when his people earnestly pray to him. 
important? I think that passage is tremendously important, and there are a lot of other ones like that. There's one in Amos where God shows Amos that the locusts are going to come and destroy the land. Amos cries out, Oh, Lord God, forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented, said, It shall not be. So God's people pray, and it changes the way, and God responds and thereby changes the way that he acts with respect to um, with respect to the world. Yeah, Bill. I, I think it's really interesting after Moses prayed and God told them they were going to leave Sinai. Yep. He says, I will not go with you. I'm going to send an yep. angel with you. Because <clears throat> yep. I still may destroy it because you're still fast. Yeah. Well, and so there's this whole, there's a lot of other kinds of disobedience that comes later, and they send the spies, and they don't believe the spies. So there are a number of these instances. Um, but God, again and again, God cries out, or Moses cries out for mercy. Moses, Aaron cry out for mercy. Sometimes, I don't know if the people ever do, they cry to Moses. But um, then God hears. So importance of prayer. Um, no, did he change his mind? Okay, Clyde. And change his mind. He changed his present intention to the situation. So now, if you ask me, did God plan before the foundation of the world that Moses would pray and that God would respond? I would say, yes. Okay? He planned that. But it's important that he planned it, that it would come about in response to human prayer. And we don't know ahead of time what he's going to plan. And sometimes God genuinely responds to things that he sets in motion. In fact, last night, on a human analogy, I did something that I planned to happen, and then I responded to it, and that is I set the alarm clock. And when it went off, I really responded. It wasn't just pretend. <laughs> I had to get up and walk across the room and turn it off. And so whenever we do that, we kind of plan something that we know is going to, we've caused it to come about, but when it happens, we respond to it. So again, that's an analogy to help us see that God can plan that our human actions will, in fact, be responded to by him. Um, Tom? Okay. Okay. Uh, John? How much do you think that, you read what Moses said, that for yep. me, my conscience would be about where I got. Yep. So I'm not putting myself in that. Yep. Yep. That Moses got to God's conscience a little bit? I don't want <clears> the Egyptians saying, yeah. is that possible, do you think, or no? Did, did Moses get to God's conscience, or did trouble go? Um, I think um, um, let me see. Yeah, what, this is a, a good question. What is going on? Why is God doing this? Why is He saying, um, "Look, I'm going to let me alone. I'm, my wrath may burn hot against them, that <clears throat> I can consume them." I, I think He's doing it. I mean, I think it's real. If, if something, if, if Moses hadn't prayed, I think he would have destroyed them. But, but I think he's doing it in order to encourage Moses to pray also. Now, does God listen to appeals concerning his reputation, his past action, his reputation, and what he has said? Yes. I think there's a pattern for us for praying, saying, you know, Lord, this is for your honor, ultimately. Or haven't you said in your word, and we can... Or haven't you, haven't you answered prayer for us again and again and again? And haven't you cared for us? Will you please do it again? It's always with humility that we say that, but I think it's a pattern for us to appeal to. Um, 
It's a little bit hard for me to know exactly what. I don't think God is saying, oh yeah, the Egyptians, I forgot about them. You know, I, I don't, <laughs> it isn't that, but it's, but it's even, I mean, just to take a human analogy, um, uh, sometimes in interpersonal relationships, um, when we, we can bring up something in a conversation that the person knows but hadn't been using in re- regard to that situation. Uh, hadn't, I don't know. I'm not, sure, I, I'm not sure I can answer that. I'm, the more I talk, the more trouble I'm going to get in. What's your name back there? I can't see it. Mike. Um, I think this brings up questions in, in, in our minds. Yeah. Obviously, he knew that they were going to pray. And the other day, I read something that sort of helped me in this issue. And he said, if our God is fathomable, yeah. we understand totally, yeah. then he's no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah, that goes back. Okay. Okay. So I mean, that goes back to this um, incomprehensibility, or we'll never know God fully, completely. And so there's some things we won't understand. I need to think about a little bit more what's going on. My, here's my instinct. John's question. My instinct is, it would be worthwhile sitting with that passage for 10 or 15 minutes and thinking. Now, what is God thinking when Moses is saying this? Okay. I think that my, that's my instinct, but I'm not able to process it very well right now. Good. Okay, there's one more. <clears throat> the Lord is very sorry that he had made man on the earth. This is a story before the flood, before the story of Noah. All this, It says, every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, evil is just growing. And it says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. I don't think that means that God was saying, oh, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have done that, create these people. I think it means that he is grieved about the situation. That is, God's previous actions, creating human beings, led to events that in the short term, that is in the present here, caused him sorrow, but in the long term would accomplish his good purposes. Just like you can think of a father who sees a son going astray and lets him go on a path that he knows is going to be hurtful, but in the long term, it's going to bring about greater good because it's going to teach responsibility, something like that. That is, in the short term, you're sorrowful about it, but in the long term, you know it's a greater good. And I think that's what's happening here. In the short term, God looks at the human beings that he's made and says, I'm sorrowful at these human beings that I've created, but God has a greater purpose and that his his justice and his holiness will be demonstrated in judgment, and his grace will be demonstrated as he saves some people out of judgment. So all of these prayer answers to prayer, changing mind with regard to Jonah, changing mind with regard to Israel, and sorrow with regard to making man on the earth, they should be understood as true expressions of God's present, present, present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists at the moment. And they're true, but they're not saying everything about God's big perspective, long-term perspective, um, uh, in, in terms of taking all of that into account. Now, how much more can I talk about here? The question of God's impassibility, I'll do this very quickly. Some theologians have denied that God has passions or emotions. And the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1647, very good confession of faith, but it talks, it uses this word impassable with respect to God. And I, I don't, they must have meant something other than this, or else there's something, there's something that I don't understand because 
I do not think it's true that God doesn't have emotions. He's kind of this impersonal um, being that doesn't feel things. The Bible seems to be constantly affirming that God has emotions. He rejoices in Isaiah 62.5. In Psalm 78, it says they grieved him. God was grieved or sorrowful. talks about his wrath burning against the people. That We just talked about that passage. He has compassion on his children. Uh, he has anger uh, for a moment, but then love toward his, uh, his people as well in Isaiah. A lot of emotions. And so um, uh, I, I think that's wrong to say that God is just unfeeling. I think he does genuinely feel emotions uh, and sadness and joy and other things. And then last, and I'll do this in the last uh, four or five minutes here, there's a challenge from process theology. Process theology, I just, I just want you to know the phrase. It's nothing that is held by anybody in the evangelical world, but in the larger academic world, it's a very popular view of God. Process theology asserts that process and change are essential aspects of genuine existence. In other words, everything is changing. Rocks, what's happening to rocks? By wind and water, they're slowly eroding. What's happening to stars? They're burning up eventually. It takes a long time. Um, so uh, even things that are very stable, we think of in the universe, they're slowly um, changing. And so people who advocate process theology say, everything that exists is changing. Therefore, God must be changing. And so they say that God must be changing over time just like everything else that exists. Charles Hartshorn, a philosopher who lived 103 years and died in Austin, Texas in 2000, taught at the University of Chicago, at Emory, and the University of Texas, he said God is continually adding to himself all the experiences in the universe, and thus God is constantly changing in his being. Hmm. And he wrote a lot of books and attracted a wide following and has a number of followers today in university settings saying, oh, what is God like? Well, he's continually taking to himself all the experiences in the universe. You say, that's a crazy idea. Why would anybody ever believe that? I'll tell you why they believe it. Because it has a great appeal to human pride. Here's why. Process theology gains appeal from its answer to the question of how we can have ultimate meaning. We change the being of God. How does that make you feel? Well, there's a lot of pride that's going to enter into that. That is, how important are you? Well, all my actions are actually being taken up into God's being and I'm changing his being. My goodness. Ooh, when you think about that a minute, it makes you have an inflated sense of pride, but there ought to be a revulsion in your heart against that too, saying there's something really wrong with saying that. But I think it is ultimately that people are trying to say, well, if we can't change the being of God, then we don't matter. See, and they've, they've, but they've missed, and they've had two mistaken assumptions. One is the wrong assumption that significance comes from changing God rather than from God's counting us significant. See, remember when I said, well, if God didn't need you, why are you important? It's because God counts you important. That's enough. He defines what's important. But these people are starting out to say, well, if I can't change God, then I'm not important. 
I think that's a wrong way to look for significance. And the second thing is to th say that God has to be like the universe. Everything in the universe is changing, therefore God is changing. By contrast, Hebrews 1, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. There's a contrast. That like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. There's a contrast. God is unlike everything in the universe. Oh, can I finish this? Yes. <laughs> the God of the Bible is both infinite and personal. All other religions have one or the other, a personal God who is weak and finite. There's gods of Greek mythology, and they, they get in trouble. They have weaknesses. They, they have flaws. Or tribal religions have weak, finite gods, and now process theology has a finite God. He relates to us, but he's always changing. Or some religions have an infinite God who is not personal, such as pantheism. Kind of everything is God, but it's very impersonal. But the Bible portrays a God who is both infinite and personal. He's infinite, and yet he relates to us personally. As far as process theology, no evangelicals have adopted this. No evangelicals have adopted process theology. But there was a movement, or there is a movement, called open theism that has some similarities. And I talked about this in this class a couple years ago when I was involved with the ETS Executive Committee, whether we'd exclude some people teaching open, the open theism. That is the idea that God changes in his knowledge. He learns what will happen when it happens. Greg Boyd, John Sanders, Clark Pinnock were advocating this in the evangelical world. They've been marginalized now. People said no. They said we're not processed theologians because we don't think God changes in his being, but when you change your knowledge, it seems like you're changing something of God's being or perfections, and that idea worried me a lot, and I don't think it's true, the idea that God learns new things as the future happens. All right, here's, I've got one minute left. I'm watching the clock. I need to get over there for Ed Wilmington's uh, farewell service. But why is this doctrine important? What would it be like if God could change in his being? It would be scary, yeah, for sure, because how would you know if you could trust him? Or might he become a little better? Well, then why did you trust him in the first place? <clears throat> Wasn't he good enough? Or might he become worse? Might he even might God become one percent evil after ten thousand years? And then five percent evil after a hundred thousand years? What if God could become a little bit evil and then a little more evil? And then what if God became completely evil and he's still infinitely powerful? And there's nothing you can do about it. I can't think of anything more frightening than that. If God could change in his being, how could we trust him? How could we worship him? What if he changed in his purpose? Then we wouldn't have confidence that the future is going to turn out in a way that God is pleased with. What if he changed in his promises? You get to heaven and he says, why should I let you in? You say, because I trusted in Jesus for forgiving my sins. And he said, I'm sorry, that statement's no longer operative. <clears throat> you had to get to Christian ethics class by 8.14 in the morning and you didn't really average that throughout your lifetime. So, I mean, that'd be really worrisome, wouldn't it? God's unchangeableness is absolutely necessary. It's important for everything we believe about him. 
I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. The heavens will perish, but you remain. You are the same. Your years have no end. We can trust him. We can rely on him. We can count on him. We can worship him. He will never change. An absolutely crucial attribute of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we give you great thanks and praise that with you there is no variation or shadow due to change, that we pray to you today and you're the same God that um, Noah prayed to, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob prayed to, the same God who was revealed to us by Jesus when he was on the earth. You are the same forever, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Though you don't need us, Lord, yet now you've created us and you've made us significant in the work of your kingdom and you count us important and you accomplish your purposes through us and we give you great thanks and praise, Lord. You did not need to do this, but it's how you've set up the world to work. And you count prayer important, Lord, and even now as we worship you and honor you, You are pleased and you take delight in us. The God of the universe, the infinite, eternal God, you listen to us and you are pleased with us and we praise you for that. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.